welcome to Swing Stuff, the podcast in which we talk about swing dancing, swing music, and all of the various stuff that intersects with swing dance culture, both historically and today. My name is Ruby, and today's episode is with Arani Nijvetsky, who is a swing dancer, DJ, and fellow podcast enthusiast. You may already know Arani from her own podcast called Women in Jazz, which is dedicated to amplifying the voices of female and non-binary jazz musicians. Arani is deeply passionate about her work, and I wanted to talk to her about some of the stories she's come across in her research, what she's learned about women in jazz today, and what motivated her to start this project. Sadly, women musicians are typically underrepresented in jazz, but there are some incredible stories of achievement despite hardship, so I hope that this episode can be a springboard for you to find out about these women, to go forth and do your own learning and uh, music nerdery. (laughs) Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Swing Stuff is on Patreon, so if you're enjoying the show so far, I'd love it if you could head on over and check that out to see if it's for you. Patreon contributions go towards the cost of running this podcast, and they're greatly appreciated. So I've put a link to that in the show notes. Without further ado, here is our chat about women in jazz. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, no worries. Thanks, Ruby. First of all, how are you doing? How is um, lockdown and everything treating you? Mm, I'm good. I'm good. It's been, I think I've been relatively lucky in this time, to be to be totally honest with you. Uh, teaching dancing full time at the beginning, it was a little bit of a, uh, a scary moment looking at what might happen uh, work-wise, but uh, luckily with online classes um, and sort of support from the local community, I've ended up being able to keep up uh, with work, which has been a great relief. Um, And uh, yeah, alongside that, I'm very lucky to live in quite a big house. I live in uh, Belgium, in Brussels, and I live in quite a big, big house uh, with how many of us? There are nine total uh, and eight of us do Lindy Hop and uh jazz dance so (laughs) uh, so in that sense it's been and we all get along like very well as well so although we haven't been as motivated to kind of dance as we might ordinarily be because I think it's been a strange time emotionally for many of us um it's it's been pretty good to enjoy this time with these people and I uh, it means that we haven't been particularly lonely so I think all in all I'm doing pretty well um, been taking this time as an opportunity to read a lot more. And I guess that also means reading more about jazz history and educating myself more. And especially, uh, I mean, also given recent events, um, in America, the fact that the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, and others, and that combined with the lockdown has kind of really put a spotlight on the Black Lives Matter movement. I guess this time has kind of been a, a good opportunity to educate myself a little bit more around uh, race and issues of white supremacy and uh, racism in jazz in the way it's recorded in history, perhaps, as well. Mm. That's a very long answer. Anyway, that's how I am. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> we got time. We got time. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, I'm reading, I'm reading three books. Well, I'm actually, I've just finished one, uh, which is a book actually by, um, an Australian author. Um, she's Lebanese, uh, background, I believe. Um, her name is Ruby Hamad. I hope that last name pronunciation was okay. And she, uh, she has a book called White Tears, Brown Scars, uh, which I would totally recommend to people. Um, it focuses on uh, issues of race in post-colonial societies. So Australia, America, the UK, Netherlands, Belgium, places like this, France, India, I think as well. Um, so it's kind of quite a broad view and look at sort of racial dynamics and white supremacy and then particularly how that relates to feminism and women specifically. So it's an interesting angle there. Um, and then I'm reading a book about gendered kind of data bias. It's called Invisible Women. And I cannot remember the name of the author right now, but it's, uh, I believe she's uh, based in the UK. And uh, that's also an interesting book. And then I'm reading a fiction um, about some thieves uh, in like a 
fictional medieval kind of world. So <laughs> that's a balance. bit of a side note. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. We've got a little reading list <laughs> to put in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, cool. And so what's your sort of background in terms of dance and music? Because it's um, very clear you're passionate and knowledgeable about such matters. Um, what sort of brought you to this? I guess I grew up uh, with jazz as as like a style of music that my parents did listen to a bit. I would say it was more on kind of the more geared towards the, the crooners and that kind of thing. My dad, uh, my parents really liked people like Bing Crosby and uh, Nat King Cole was a favorite, a favorite, favorite, favorite of my dad. Louis Armstrong is another one that my mum particularly really loved. Um, also, Frank Sinatra is definitely someone that my dad is into, Sammy Davis Jr. So that music, that was part of the music that was kind of in the house playing when I was growing up. And also my parents used to, my mum loved old films. And so she would show me a lot of old films that, of course, you know, had all this jazz and uh, dance in them. And to be totally honest with you, so I, I studied saxophone in school um, until kind of the last few years of my school when I stopped playing, unfortunately, a little bit regretfully, but anyway. Um, but to be honest, the, the inspiration from that was partly that I just liked the sound of it, but definitely had a lot to do with Lisa Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it wasn't the most conscious kind of influence, but, I mean, you know, growing up in Australia, like any for the, the Simpsons, old episodes especially of the simpsons were on like every day for like oh, yeah. about 15 to 20 years 6 p.m <laughs> channel 10 every night of the week so any australian kid growing up that was allowed to watch uh, the simpsons would you know was well versed in it and i think just yeah seeing it and hearing the hearing the sound and liking it and lisa simpson is like i guess a pretty strong female character um, and particularly was so maybe in the early 90s as opposed to She's now. a great role model. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. I haven't looked back and analysed The Simpsons and like the gender dynamics of The Simpsons, <laughs> but I feel like she's a pretty strong female character. Um, and, yeah, when she used to just like play those like uh, just um, the episodes like with Bleeding Gums Murphy when she would be playing, I just fucking loved it. I love the sound. Um, and so that drew me to the saxophone and then I started playing sax and got introduced to a bit more jazz, got introduced to like John Coltrane and Count Basie even. And so there was that, I don't know. I, I saw swing people doing Lindy Hop in Adelaide in Australia. And I saw people doing Lindy Hop in the city center when I was about in about grade 10, this was about 16, I think. And I took a flyer from the people and was like, oh, my God, I have to do this. And me and my best friend would look up like every any time we would watch So You Think You Can Dance and every time there was like a swing quote, I'm doing air quotes, a swing dancing <laughs> routine, we would like send each other a message and be like, oh, swing dancing is on. And, yeah, I'd kind of had in mind to take classes and just kept the flyer for years and years and was getting all crumpled and old and disgusting. And I was like, either I'm going to throw this away and never go or I'm going to go like next week. So I started going to classes. That was 2010 and uh, was like hooked from the first class. And so that just really pulled me deeper and deeper into um, the culture. But already at that time I was listening to jazz. I think I also had quite a, I was quite interested in the Boswell sisters, which I'm not so much now to be totally honest, but they were something that I really gravitated towards kind of in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah, um, there was a Swedish, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a Swedish radio show, which I guess was run by like people who do Lindy Hop, but it was called like Reedy Radio or something like that. And I used to, before I started dancing, I used to follow Reedy Radio and listen to all of the tunes they had. And uh, that was kind of where I started also getting my, my early taste for sort of more swing and early styles of jazz as opposed to like John Coltrane and Dexter Gordon and stuff like that. Yeah, and so I've just kind of been in the scene ever since and I was kind of moving around in Europe after leaving Australia in 2017. I was invited to do like a Lindy Hop teaching residency in Luxembourg um, and I was teaching with a dancer called Adam Brzezowski 
which was sort of came out of the blue. Uh, <laughs> um, but I was thinking about changing my job when I was living in Melbourne and maybe trying to come back to Europe because I had spent some time here in the past. And it just kind of came at the right moment. And so I moved. And once I was here, I was enjoying it. And so I basically decided to stay and see kind of how I could go and was moving around a bit and had come to Belgium for a few events. And there was something about the energy in the swing scene here, something about the, the vibe that really appealed to me. Um, they have a lot of really uh, energetic, great, and many uh, young sort of live, uh, long, young bands here, blah. Um, <laughs> so that, I guess that also kind of contributes to the vibe. And so, yeah, something about the, the feeling of Belgium really appealed to me. And so I moved here um, one and a half, two years ago, roughly about, yeah. It'll be two years in September. Two years in September. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I haven't been yet, but um, it's definitely on the list. I would love to go. Yeah, definitely. Got to check it out. Gotta, yeah, got to check it out. And so um, Women in Jazz, the podcast, mm-hmm. this is a project that you launched at the start of this year, end of last year? Yes, the start, uh, end of last year. Yes, end of last year. It's something that had kind of been cooking away in my mind for a while. Um, probably took me about a year between thinking of it and then kind of getting everything together. Um, I'm a bit slow on the follow through with a lot of things that I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So women in jazz, uh, I guess there's four episodes that have been released now, so it's still kind of in its infancy. One of the, the factors is that I would like to, well, I had wanted to con- uh, conduct the interviews in person. And with the COVID uh, situation, that's kind of put some limitations on that. I'm now reevaluating how I make the podcast. I think it makes sense too at the moment. But um, yeah, it's I'm still kind of finding my way, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. And women, women in jazz also has a an Instagram account, and so on the Instagram account, I post a women of jazz history post. So trying to spotlight female jazz artists that in some cases haven't necessarily kind of got the attention that I think that they would have deserved in their time and really just trying to uh, document in one place uh, some of these different women and to maybe give people an insight into just how many prolific uh, female jazz artists there were in the past in sort of the in early jazz and the swing era and in the bop era and to give people a bit of a jumping off point if they want to look more into past uh, female jazz musicians. Yeah. And so what would you say is like the reason why you started the podcast in this project? Mm. Was it something that you um, like wouldn't have made if it had already existed or or was it something that was quite personal to you? Perhaps I th- both. <laughs> I think if it existed, I don't think I would have made it. I guess I saw a lack of record and I looked for – things in this vein and I could find sort of like one-off episodes and maybe websites that had blog posts that sort of recorded some um, musicians and stuff, but nothing that was really focused in this way. I think ironically when I released my podcast, then another podcast called Women in Jazz with another subheading popped up at the same time. So (laughs) it's one of those things uh, when there's something in the air and people kind of all jump to something at the same time, like – when I'm going to give the lamest example, but when they made um, the movie A Bug's Life at <laughs> Disney Pixar and then they made Ants at DreamWorks and everyone was like, how did this happen? Um, I know, indeed. it's one of the- <laughs> such a fascinating scandal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, so fascinating. Why don't we just talk about that instead? <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, I guess it's something that, you know, people are turning – more towards as time goes on, of course, it's it's normal. Um, but from what I've seen, that's also kind of in, the, the focus of that is a little different. Um, my idea was really to record the the stories of different women playing jazz. And, and the inspiration for that partly came from um, I was reading a book, which I highly recommend to anyone who's listening to this and is interested in a female jazz artist, particularly those from early jazz. Um, I was reading a book called Some Liked It Hot, a Jazz Woman in Film and Television. Um, and it's like from the late 20s to the end of the 50s, I think, the, the time bracket that it's from. 
uh, or uh, focuses on, sorry. So I was reading this book and was really struck by how many names I came across of women who seemed like they were incredibly important musicians, super influential and just have, I had never heard of them before. One example that stands out is a, uh, a woman by the name of Jane Sager and she was a trumpet player and she was mentored by Roy Eldridge and was a mentor of Chet Baker. So she's sandwiched between these two greats that are very well known and yet it's the first that I'd ever heard of her reading that. And I was thinking how is it that, first of all, you know, you can't find her if you try and look her up on Spotify or wherever. And also then trying to look for more information about her life, it was really almost impossible to find anything particularly detailed. And I was shocked, you know, how someone who really was this influential, you know, if she was working, helping to mentor Chet Baker, who's so well known, that she could just be sort of totally overlooked. And then tied to that, I was also, I was living in Amsterdam at the time. And I remember I was listening to a lot of um, interview podcasts. It's like a form that I, I guess maybe you're in the same boat. <laughs> um, it's a form that I find generally really interesting. Um, I like hearing people's stories sort of at length in detail. And so I was listening to a few podcasts like that at the time. And I remember going to a jazz gig and uh, there was a, there was a, it was a bunch of young jazz, uh, male jazz musicians playing at the gig. And at some point they invited a female friend of theirs up on stage to, to feature as a vocalist. And she, I don't know, she sang a chorus or whatever. And then the musicians kind of all proceeded to like move in front of her and stand in front of her on the stage. And perhaps like, I mean, already I think it was really disrespectful but, you know, she, they were soloing or they were doing whatever and she wasn't singing. Okay, maybe it's just the whatever. But then she started singing again. She came back and they just kept standing in front of her. And I just remember thinking, like, how much? And she was good. She deserved, I mean, whether or not she was amazing, she still deserved their respect. But she was really, like, she was a really nice singer a great vocalist and they just totally kind of disregarded her and another woman got up and it was a very similar kind of situation and it just made me think like how much women in jazz must sometimes have to go through to be appreciated or to like if I I mean I don't know for myself if I would get up there and that would be treated like that it would make me feel like I was bad and I wasn't worth uh, the kind of care and attention from them. So to have that kind of experience and to put up with it and to still think, yeah, I still want to do, I still want to be a jazz musician, it must for many women take a lot of personal kind of strength and a lot of kind of commitment, a lot of belief in what they want to do. Um, And so, yeah, I think between those things I figured a a great way to sort of remedy the lack of record of jazz women in the past, since there's not a lot I can do to go back in time and, and get this information um, would, yeah, a remedy for that would be to start recording more of, of women that play jazz today. And I think as well, there's that, I sort of hate it, but there's that old, there's that adage, like you can't be what you can't see. And it is true. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I think, you know, representation is such a great, like, ally for any kind of groups that are, you know, marginalised or, you know, or, or mistreated or whatever, whatever it is. I think for young women coming up to be able to look to the women that are already there and to hear their stories, to hear what they've done, to hear how great they are, to hear... Yeah, just to hear more about them, I think it it can do a lot for the, the next generation kind of coming up to hear about the kind of musicians that they want to be. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I think I think like I have to say as well, I'm a big fan of the Women in Jazz podcast. And I think it's I think it's great because it kind of it, it does two things. Um one of them is that I think there's this misconception that 
women don't exist in history <laughs> because mm. there is no history um, or, or that it's not as documented. And so it, it documents people who are doing good work and creates a kind of a historical reference, you know, for the future. And it also, yeah. um, it also creates opportunities where maybe there is a, a disparity between the amount of men in jazz as to women in jazz. So um, mm. we're going to eventually see more women and non-binary people taking mm. up positions that would have been held by white men, basically, or men yeah. in general. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, so you've interviewed four musicians so far. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, pub- published, four episodes are published. There are <laughs> a few that actually have not, I have not been able to publish for tech reasons or other reasons. Um, so I hope to fix that at some point to re-record or to get those episodes out another way. Um, and I also have some now backed up for uh, sort of through the lockdown as well that I have to get to editing. <laughs> <sighs> so what have you what have you learned from speaking to the women that you've had on your show so far? Hmm. Huh. Um, it's interesting. In general, I've just learnt little bits and pieces really about uh, these women's kind of different interests. Um, you know, there's there's the repeat kind of uh, theme that, you know, they they have had people kind of disregard them uh, or not believe that they're musicians necessarily or, yeah, just kind of uh, – a bit of a an energy f- from male musicians sometimes that they are not to be kind of included. I talked badly about um, particularly singers. Often women are singers, and I think singers particularly get a bad rap um, from other jazz musicians. Um, part of the reason behind that is maybe based in some sometimes truth, which is that like vocalists don't necessarily know and don't necessarily need to know a lot of the kind of ins and outs of the the theory, the chord progressions, the things that they're kind of dealing with. And so I guess sometimes vocalists are not super prepared with the information that maybe the rest of the band would like them to have. But I think that that's looked down upon sometimes quite unfairly I also know a few vocalists that are very, very talented that don't always, you know, that don't have the strongest grasp on music theory. But I also wonder, you know, if you would ask Billie Holiday to sit like a music theory exam, how would she have gone versus knowing, you know, how to adapt to a band in real life and be kind of in charge of what's happening in the room to be able to improvise, to be able to kind of do all these things so Mm. I do. Uh, yeah, uh, there are some issues there. Uh, I think sing- singers are often expected to be not really in the know and uh, often they're women. So I think that creates some issues. I've talked to a few singers, so I guess that that's something that we've talked about a little bit. But one thing, one thing I've particularly noticed is how, uh, how willing some women are to discuss what it's like to be a woman in jazz music, uh, how, how willing they are to discuss that while being recorded versus when they're in the room with me not being recorded. So it is true of some people that, yeah, they're really just not willing to to really share their experiences truthfully because I think that they're afraid that the men that they know in, in the jazz world will kind of listen to what they've said and misinterpret it, um, think that they're complaining, and they've Honestly, like they should be complaining. They're allowed to complain. Um, but I, I think it's a shame because one thing I was hoping to spotlight, although not directly with the podcast, is what women uh, in the jazz scene do experience, how they're treated perhaps uh, differently or as less than as compared to the men. And unsurprisingly, that's not something I can address quite as much as I would like to or can can show as much as I would like to because people are not necessarily comfortable sharing that information. 
So it's it is nice when you get someone that's very willing to share their experience openly. I think there's also different perceptions. Some women feel like they haven't had much of an issue at all, um, but I think uh, they've also perhaps uh, adapted the way that they behave in that environment so that they better fit in. I think that's kind of where I'm at so far. Yeah. It's also really nice to um, like not only hear the realities of those experiences when, um, you know, when that is shared, but also to learn more about jazz music from a dancer's perspective, to hear women musicians talking about that, to be able to learn from them. It's really, really mm. nice um, because, cool. yeah, yeah, it's like you say, you know, representation is important and it's nice to um to see a more diverse um, representation in terms of jazz educators. Mm, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's another thing I'm trying to be mindful of is making sure that I can interview a diverse lineup of people. And part of that is being interested in interviewing people from a variety of countries, um, but also making sure that, you know, I'm not just representing white women, but also black women and I would also like to, and I'm very, will very openly admit right now, uh, I feel like it's kind of a current failing that I don't really have any contact with or awareness of like uh, non-binary musicians that I might like to be in contact with. So if someone listening knows a professional jazz musician that identifies that way and would like to maybe get in touch with me, please let me know. Um, I And even then, I mean, also there's um, – I'm aware of of a trans woman that um, plays bass professionally, um, but there are, yeah, I feel that's I feel that trans people and people of sort of very gender identities are also people that I would like to include because I think as a sort of modern feminist, it's not enough just to focus on, you know, the the voice of the white woman, but it's something that I'm working on, and indeed I, I wonder how welcoming the jazz uh, community if it's male dominated is to people whose uh, gender expression is not something that fits their heteronormative worldview. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I I wanted to say that um, I, I think we touched on it earlier, but um, I'm really loving your Instagram, the women in jazz Instagram. Oh yeah. And it's been amazing in terms of like these little nuggets of um, different women in jazz history mm-hmm. and learning about them. And um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you, like what sort of informs your research um, mm. when it comes to that? And um, who are some sort of top picks, like people that you've been um, really interested in and, and posting about lately? Yeah. So this is something I've had in mind to mention as well to you is uh, that Indeed, my that Instagram is coming off the backs of a lot of other people's very hard work and research. And given that it's Instagram and I'm limited in what I can post, I don't unfortunately cite all my references and maybe that's something I need to get better about putting together because, indeed, I just kind of go for a big old Google and sometimes use <laughs> some of the books that I have available and really just collate the information that I come across yeah, sometimes as well add stuff if I've seen it in a documentary or or something like that. But I guess the the aim on my part is really just uh, to have to offer a centralized kind of resource that is uh, social media friendly. And like you said, it's kind of these little bite sized snapshots of people's lives. And unfortunately, in some cases, that information is more or less what's available, actually. I mean, indeed, if I would get in touch with uh, relatives and stuff and start to research, I'm sure I could find out more, um, as I'm hoping to do for one uh, musician. But, for example, I think I posted a l- sort of recently about a saxophonist, baritone saxophonist called Willie Mae Wong, who was from the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. She's uh, half Chinese, often referred to as the Chinese girl from the group. She's half Chinese. Um, and then her, I think her mother is actually part, was actually part uh, Native American. Um, so she's uh, definitely a mixed race member of the International Sweethearts. And even though she passed away not so long ago, the information that I was able to find out about her specifically was pretty limited. And I think what I've ended up posting on the Instagram is about the whole of it, which, yeah. Is a shame, really is a shame. 
I just saw you put up um, Gladys Bentley. Yes, uh, I was. Which is I was awesome. just thinking about. <laughs> I was thinking about Gladys Bentley. Um, yeah, so Gladys Bentley, for people who are listening and don't know, um, she was uh, a queer um, pianist and vocalist. Um, a lot of her earlier stuff is more kind of in the blues vein, so people would refer to her sometimes as a blues vocalist. Um, but she was really an incredible pianist as well. Um, and she grew up, I think in Philadelphia and was really quite rejected by her family because she sort of rejected femininity, didn't want to wear dresses, would wear her brother's clothes, didn't much like her brothers. Apparently her mum had wanted her to be a boy. And so she also kind of rejected men as well as kind of dressing as as one often um she reportedly you know would have crushes on her female teachers and stuff and her family actually tried to when she was young uh tried to send her to doctors and to psychologists to like correct her behavior basically and uh she ran away from home when she was 16 and moved to Harlem and she found out that uh there was there's a club um in Harlem I should check the name. Um, it's it was called the it was called Harry Hansbury's Clam House, and it was a f- famous, perhaps infamous, I don't know, a gay uh, speakeasy in Harlem, and they were looking for a male pianist, and so she went for the job wearing men's clothes and got the job, and was so popular that the club was soon named after her. Um, it was at the time her stage name was. Barbara Bobby Minton. And so they called the club, um, was it Barbara's, Barbara's Exclusive Club? And so she <laughs> continued playing there. It was super famous. She signed a, a record deal with uh, OK Records, O-K-E-H, for people who are not in the know. Uh, yeah, so she signed a record deal with them. If you look for her music, you can find some stuff. And she's really an incredible, it's very clear how good of a singer and a pianist she was. Um, and then she started playing at another club in, in Harlem and she would still play in her, you know, fuller men's kind of at, uh, attire and uh, often backed up by uh, like a chorus line of drag performers. So she was uh, pretty cool and also went on tour, was a favourite of a lot of like Hollywood stars at the time, people like Cary Grant and stuff. And then... At the end of the Prohibition era, she she moved to Southern California and unfortunately it was a lot harder for her to get gigs in that time. She was still working, but it was more difficult. And then coming into, I think, the, the I guess the, the McCarthy era. So my, my American president uh, presidential kind of knowledge is not super strong, but I guess that was like the early 50s. And in that time the kind of American, the climate in America became increasingly hostile toward uh, queer people. So she at some points had to carry around like a permit to wear men's clothing for her performances. Oh, really? um, and then the sadder part of her story is that later in life, by that pressure and that sort of hostile environment, she started to dress more femininely. She kind of, there was a pub, very sort of publicly, I think it was in a paper that she married a man. She'd famously actually married a woman uh, when she was living in Harlem at some point. I think it was a civil law union of some kind. Uh, so she was sort of seen to be with with this man and, and she actually published an article which you can read at least part of the text of. It's, it's findable um, online. But she... Um, wrote an article that was published called uh, something like I Am a Woman and it basically explains the sort of hostility to her as she was coming up and then she basically says like I was really confused but I've been cured now and I think she was on some kind of hormones that were supposed to uh, fix her sexuality. Um, And so, yeah, in the latter part of her life she at least publicly tried to make a point of, uh, quote, becoming straight or, or repenting her kind of past. I think she even tried to become a minister 
if I remember correctly. So that's sort of the sadder part of her life, but I can't help but wonder if that was more a product of kind of the the societal pressure and the danger at the time of kind of being outwardly queer. Mm. Um, And maybe just being tired, like being harassed her whole life for the way that she was dressed and then maybe not being in such a position of power as she had managed to be in her earlier life in Harlem, I guess uh, just being tired of people treating you that way all the time. You probably want to rest probably. And you would probably would deeply feel like there was something wrong with you if the whole world kept telling you that you were wrong, you know? So yeah, yeah. I do kind of, but she was absolutely amazing. There's a, on the Instagram post, I put some of her music, but yeah, if you, Go to YouTube and look up Gladys Bentley. There's uh, just, there's some great stuff that you can find already there. Um, and actually, there's a I found a picture book that was made about her um, called "If This Be Sin," which was meant to be the title of her uh, autobiography that was never released. Um, so yeah, if you if you like picture books, or if anyone out there has uh, has friends with kids or has kids, and they want to buy them a picture book about. Gladys Bentley, uh, check it out, If This Be Sin. I can't remember the name of the author, sorry. That's all right, we can do some Googling later. Um, one of the other resources you shared, which is, has has been super helpful, um, is the documentary um, The Girls in the Band. Mm. And um, when you shared that initially, it was free to watch on her flicks. I don't know if it is still available. It's still free. I checked today, actually. Oh, cool. um, It's still free, but you have to make an account. And I don't know if it's region blocked. I can watch it from Belgium. And to me, it seems like the site is American originally. So I would say that there's some international accessibility there, but I don't know country by country what that is. Okay. Well, if you can watch it, definitely do. Um, yes. <laughs> and yeah, I found that super um, interesting because, I mean, they focus on the international sweethearts of rhythm who you mentioned who are an incredible band and um i loved learning about um their stories as individuals but also um like one mm. of the things i found particularly interesting was their career during the um second world war mm. and, <laughs> and how they were making music um and performing where they could but they only really had the majority of their gigs and spotlight when um, a lot of the men who were musicians um, went to war Mm. and so they kind of got all of those gigs but then it dried up as soon as the war finished yeah yeah it's uh it's I guess it was pretty common there was really a surge for women in music and when the men all came back a lot of them lost their jobs and I think those that weren't as well known often kind of decided to, you know, leave music and go have a family and, and whatnot. And, uh, uh, yeah, not just specifically in the Sweethearts, but in a lot of those all-girl bands, I mean, there were there were many. There's also a book which I, uh, to be totally honest, um, have not read, um, but it's called A Swing Shift, um, and it's about uh, all-girl bands of the 1940s. I've, from a friend's copy, I've checked out some snippets from it, but that talks about those those bands um and in the, the the one that i referenced earlier some liked it hot um jazz women in film and television got to give the subtitle otherwise people think i'm talking about the uh <laughs> the movie Monroe. with marilyn monroe <laughs> so no that's not what it is liked in the past tense not co- like in the present <laughs> tense um but in that book also the, there's mention of um International Sweethearts, um, Ina Ray Hutton's Melodias, Phil Spitani's Orchestra slash Hour of Charm, and a bunch of others. Um, and the great thing about that book as well is that it has uh, quite comprehensive like video references. I bought it on my Kindle, boo Amazon, but anyway. Um, I bought it on my Kindle and uh, uh, it was cool because you – yeah, it was help- helpful then for me to really save a lot of the resources and, I mean, you can even follow links on a Kindle. Um, so it helped me to kind of check out stuff that as I would kind of stumble across videos or, or uh, screenshots that I hadn't seen before. It's really cool because it leads you to a lot of the music that's available, a lot of the video that's available. That's a really good tip actually. I don't have a Kindle because I've, I don't know, just never really – um, imagined 
much of an advantage, yeah. but that is a great tip because I'm always Googling stuff when reading history books. Yeah. And if you can find a way, I mean, I got my Kindle as a gift, but if you can find a way to get an ebook, an e-reader that's uh, not going to be giving Jeff Bezos as much money, maybe uh, just yeah. for the people who are listening out there, <laughs> try and find Top another tip. way if you can. But yeah, Amazon sure. kind of owns everything, so it's a bit hard. Anyway. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you as well about like one of the things that was talked about in um, the girls in the band and also the panel. There's a great panel discussion um, that you've shared before with the Sweethearts of Rhythm mm. on YouTube. Um, and firstly, that. like a lot of them are hilarious. <laughs> um, they, they, they've got great personalities. And mm. um, one of the things they talk about is also like the story of how and why they started certain instruments. And mm. it, it's kind of kind of funny, kind of sad, but like a lot of them, like I don't know, like you know, this band needed someone to play the trombone, so I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll try the trombone, and um, mm. there wasn't a lot of choice around that. Plus, um, where there was choice, I f- feel like a lot of them faced a stigma of between you mm. know what is yeah. a feminine or a masculine instrument, which I think persists today. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts yes. are around that. Uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to give particular thoughts, but I will share something that uh, my a guest from my uh, one of my episodes, Louise Messenger, who lives in London, who you know, who's also Australian. Love Louise. Um, <laughs> uh, well, something that Louise brought up, um, being a music educator, she sort of pointed out that, you know, women are, or girls, sorry, are often directed more towards uh, string instruments and pianos. Um, first, I, I don't uh, know the resources sort of that she, I don't know whether the, cita- the citation for that is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Louise is a very experienced educator um, who's very knowledgeable in this kind of front, so I know she has got that from somewhere. Um, I trust that information. And I think it's true, you know, in general. Um, I mean, even just seeing the way that children as they're growing up are kind of, you know, girls are made to play with dolls and boys are made to play with trucks and whatever. And indeed, for some reason, there's that distinction in instruments. I think it might have something to do with kind of historically in Western societies, like what was an acceptable kind of parlor instrument or something like that, you know, like the kind of thing that a lady can play at home. So like, you know, if she has to, if she's from a sort of more upper middle class, uh, upper class kind of background, you know, what are young women educated to do? They can play the piano, they can sing, they can play a violin, but like there aren't really any other instruments that fall into that category. So I guess it's maybe some sort of historical carryover from that kind of those kinds of attitudes mm. that it's like a house instrument whereas a a brass instrument before kind of jazz came along it was a you know something that was played in orchestras that are dominated by men at that time and it's something that was played you know I guess some brass instruments you know in the army like mm. it's perhaps that's the root of these biases um I mean it's fair to say like if there's no good answer I think I think that's fair enough because it is a bit silly that they're even kind of gendered anyway yeah Um, that 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 would be my instinct reflecting on it but I haven't delved deeply into that enough to know for sure if that's what the root is I I feel like I've noticed the same kind of thing with band leading as well that um like I mean, please correct me if I'm long, wrong if there's mm, lots yeah, of no, great no. women band leaders, um, but I feel like they're harder to find. Um, mm. And I wonder, I mean, it might just be women in leadership in general is um, a little bit rarer in history, yeah. um, whether they exist or whether their history is even told. But um, mm. I think like one of the great, um, one of the things that I love when people talk about Ella Fitzgerald as well is that she was a band leader. Um, mm, yeah, of course. She took over for Chick Webb after he died. Yeah. 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 And um, I think, you know, at face value, certainly when I um, first started listening to Ella Fitzgerald, 
um, you kind of just assume, oh, she's a vocalist, like, you know, the best vocalist of all time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, you know, like, what does it mean to be a band leader and, and the knowledge um, and skill and leadership that's required yeah. for that as well? You know, I'd love to hear more more stories about that. Um, I haven't necessarily reflected on the disparity between kind of male and female band leaders specifically, I think, because maybe that's because a lot of the women I know who play jazz are band leaders. Um, and to me, that seems like almost like if you're going to have the, um, the guts to kind of be a woman in the jazz scene, then you probably have to be pretty kind of either strong or to learn to be pretty strong. And then I guess, and probably you also have to create your own opportunities more. That's quite, that seems like a logical, to me that makes sense, that you, that as a woman, if you're not feeling comfortable sitting in with certain bands, you're not getting invited to stuff as much because you're not in the social networks. You have to create your opportunities and therefore you make your own band. So I don't know that given how many women are in jazz, there are less women band leading. There might even proportionally be more, um, like proportional to how many women are in the jazz scene, if that, as opposed to men band leaders, proportional to how many men are in jazz. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess one thing that um, oh, I interviewed – I'm un I will have to uh, find another way to kind of get out an interview with her, but I am going to name who it is because I feel like it's important to, to cite her. I interviewed a, um, a trumpet player uh, who's from Belgium called uh, Marianne. Um, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It's Flemish. That's something I had to learn before I was going to publish her podcast episode. But I was talking to Marianne and something that she said, because she's uh, she leads some smaller groups, she leads a big band, um, mm. She's amazing. She's so good. Um, but she uh, she was saying that being a band leader also involves, like, managing the people that are in it, like managing their kind of the dynamic and their emotions and interacting with them on a personal level and stuff like that. And she sort of said that's one element of sh she's quite good with people and very interested in people and studied social work. And she said that, that she feels that that really helped her in being a band leader because she, you have to manage all these different personalities if you want a group to really work together cohesively. Um, and that's something that's helped her. So that's also an element of band leading that I think is often overlooked. You know, I think if you read, to give a masculine example, like if you read stories of Count Basie, for example, you get that, you get that idea, you get that vibe that like a lot of his job, a lot of his relationship with people, you know, he really kind of had to not just be the amazing prolific player that he was, but he also had to really kind of manage the group, manage the personalities, deal with people's expectations. Like he was generally pretty well loved. And I think his band's success probably partly comes from the rapport that he built with people that played for him. The sound as well for the Basie Orchestra, I think, probably comes partly from the rapport that he built with the musicians in the band. Yeah, so that's something that's also involved. I mean, I think it really depends if you're talking about leading a small group versus leading an orchestra, what that involves. You know, if you're deciding on set lists or if you're just kind of winging it as you go, if you're calling, you know, you're generally, if you're band leading, like people are setting the tempos, they're maybe yeah, deciding what songs are going to be played, they're dictating the solos and the kind of how the band is, if it's not already arranged, how the band is kind of following the form, ending the song or kind of either directly doing that themselves in their playing or directing others, you know. So uh, I guess those are the kind of bits and bobs involved with that. I, I think it really depends on the group as to the levels of responsibility and probably as well the dynamic of the group, how often they play together, how much the flow of things as a group is organic. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, talking about women in leadership as well. Um, one of the uh, things I learned recently was um, about Lil Harden Armstrong <laughs> and mm-hmm. how she um, – did she compose for Louis Armstrong? Or I, I think she was there the when Louis Armstrong was um, – Louis Armstrong and his Hot 5 and Hot 7, I think. Um, mm-hmm. She was their band manager. Um, yeah, she did a lot of arranging and, and composing for, for them, I believe. Yeah, and I, I love her music as well. Like after learning that, um, I went and listened to some of her music and, and didn't realise like how many songs I recognised as well from from mm. dancing, which is great, mm-hmm. um, you know, that her music is being played. But I I think it's, um yeah, I guess less spoken of is the kind of um, leadership skills and management skills that also – come from working in this industry and how women played a really big part in that yeah yes the women kind of working away behind the scenes um organizing things and not really getting full credit I guess Melba Liston is one of the great examples of that Melba Liston was a trombone player and uh maybe a little bit on the shy side she didn't really like playing solo as much until she had to really be encouraged to do so and she played alongside Dexter Gordon, Dizzy Gillespie, John Coltrane, other a bunch of others as well. Um, she arranged for like for Ellington, um, and like I'm just trying to remember the yeah. So she like there's there was kind of a story I think of her from the documentary, uh, the girls in the band. There's someone there's a story that they tell of her being called in from like the other side of the country, I think, to arrange for a show that Gillespie was doing with his with his group. And uh and Gillespie Dizzy Gillespie told his band that he was gonna bring be bringing in Melba and they were all like, you know, what do we need what do we need her for to do all this all this shit? No 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 just having a bit of a fit about it. And <laughs> uh and he just kind of he just didn't say anything. And then Mel- Melba Liston came in and she gave them the arrangements and they were all like, wow, totally taken aback by how good the arrangements were. And the quote was that the quote that they said was that she had an uncanny, something like she had an uncanny ability to make a solo, like make a section player feel like they were a soloist. Um, So like arranging the music in such a way that the in that the individual players, even if they're part of a whole, feel really validated, feel like they get to do something that's interesting for them, something that shows their skill, something that's exciting. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Melba Liston, like, she was so important, much like Mary Lou Williams in terms of her arranging work, was so important and yet so under-recognised you know, like I, I mean, I, like I said, when I was first listening to jazz, I listened to John Coltrane and was kind of into, you know, like Miles Davis and all these people and knew about all of these musicians. And, you know, I didn't hear, I had never heard of Melville Liston until a couple of years ago. And this is after, you know, this is someone who also at this point has like quite a big library of jazz music. And I just, uh, yeah, that she was that underrecognized and so much was so sort of worn down by her experiences that I think after she did a tour in the South with Billie Holiday's band or with Basie, something like that, she, she like quit music and moved to Jamaica and was teaching at the Jamaica School of Music and then like came back. Um, maybe, no, she quit twice, sorry. She quit once after the, the first experience and then – came back and then quit a second time, I think in the early 70s, and then came back, was brought back for Kansas City Women's Jazz Festival, which was the first, I think, women's jazz festival uh, on, I think that I'm aware of their, yeah, ever having been, um, was basically brought back for that and kind of restarted her career. But, yeah, she was so worn down by her experiences as a musician that she quit music several times. And she was that good of a of a player and of a of an arranger. It's a very it was a very common thing that women would quit. I think Mary Mary Lou Williams quit. She quit for about three years or something like that. Um, there's another woman called 
Juta Hip. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but she came from, actually, she's from Leipzig. Um, and she moved, she was basically like part, like uh, hiding out, learning jazz in, I think, like in Nazi Germany, and then managed to kind of get away and move to America and became a, became a musician there. But she had a lot of, a lot of problems with her during her experiences there. And yeah, eventually I think ended up quitting music just, and was also a really amazing uh, player. There's lots of stories of, of women leaving the industry because their experiences were so uh, negative. Yeah. yeah, it's really sad. You hear about the same thing in like um, STEM uh, industries, mm-hmm. like women who um, start their engineering careers and then leave is like staggeringly high. <laughs> um, you know, like women are underrepresented in those fields anyway, but of the women that start, a lot of them do quit because it's just not worth it um, in terms of the discrimination that they face. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to bring up as well um, one of the things that you mentioned when um, when we spoke a few weeks ago uh, is that um, we're talking about history and um, yeah I I've been loving like a lot of the historical um, resources that you've been sharing to learn about women in history and um, and um, you said that uh, it's important that when we're learning about history that we remember what, you know, we remember the lesson and um, what does it teach us about our lives today? Mm. And um, I've been thinking about that a lot and I think that's just such a great message, like not only for women in jazz but when we're learning about, you know, particularly around um, a lot of the discussions that are happening right now with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's super important and um yeah, I just thought that was a really great point. You know, what does it teach us about our lives today? And um, from your perspective, um, when you're learning about these women musicians in history, um, what do you think is a lesson that we can take away today and, and how can we uplift women who are working in the industry today? Mm, yeah. The lesson that we can take away. I mean... I guess first and foremost to appreciate the amount of work that women have to put in to be recognised. And I think even though things are better today, often it still persists that women are, you know, um, yeah, are just not, it's not appreciated how much work women put into really becoming excellent in a particular area, a particular career, and in general, just like also women still do the majority of unpaid labor, you know, uh, looking after, you know, looking after the house, looking after children, buying groceries, taking care of all sorts of like home administrative things, um, you know, caring for um, caring for relatives, for elderly people in the family. You know, uh, often women spend more time like traveling to and from work. Public transport structures are often set up more to benefit men than they are women. So like women are also just like working harder a lot of the time at just like getting their lives to be functional. Um, And if you if anyone listened to that and didn't believe me, uh, just go read some books. Um, but anyway, uh, particularly the one I mentioned earlier, Invisible Women, that's, uh, that's an education. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, there's so much work and emotional labour that women are putting in and reading these stories about these women, I guess it helps us to hopefully see maybe more what might be still happening today. Also just like, I mean, not that we need to be told, but just shows us like how damn capable women are of doing all of these things and that they shouldn't be underestimated. And I guess also, yeah, if we look at the way that women are recorded in jazz history, that black women are recorded in jazz history, we can also learn a lot about white supremacy, a lot about how sort of the the gatekeepers of, of jazz history at the moment are white and that women of colour are not necessarily represented in the way that they should be, that their stories are not preserved. I posted something recently on Women in Jazz where there was a picture of 
someone playing trombone and I had incorrectly shared it, given it uh, as a resource from NPR and also the Kansas City Jazz like Library. So Kansas City is where Mel Balliston was born and this picture was shared saying that it was Mel Balliston, but I got a message um, from someone saying that they were pretty sure it was actually uh, Maxine Sullivan, who is typically known as a vocalist, but learned to play valve trombone. So if you look at the image, it's someone playing valve trombone, not slide trombone. And like the majority of resources say that it's Melba Liston, but I think it's just because it's a black woman wearing a dress that kind of looks like Melba Liston's dress on the cover of her album. And like, it's a black woman playing trombone. And so they're just like, oh, it's Melba Liston. But Actually, for the more I've looked into it, I'm pretty sure it's Maxine Sullivan because there are resources that also say that. And even I think there's footage from, I haven't watched the documentary yet, but apparently there's footage from the documentary about Maxine Sullivan that shows that it's, it shows this uh, image. And like, I was thinking, would that confu- kind of confusion have occurred if those two women were white? I really don't, I really don't think so. I really don't think it's likely unless they were far less known. But Maxine Sullivan and Melba Liston are prolific in jazz and that people would like still, even now, not be able to say for sure who this picture is of is like a little bit insane as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but, but anyway, so just also like looking at history to come back to the original point, like I think we can learn a lot about how history is recorded with a bias towards white uh white people white achievement um and finally there was something i had in mind but i can't remember what it was <laughs> um yeah i don't know i get you said, that's right you said like how can we kind of i guess i guess the whole point of the podcast like i said is to amplify the voices of female jazz musicians now so it's looking at that lack of record and saying, okay, well, that shouldn't happen anymore. We need to do something about this. You know, we, I, you know, we need to be mindful of hiring more women in our orchestras or in our jazz programs or of not just pushing women towards the piano, of encouraging them to play brass. Uh, we need to, you know, find the work of Mary Lou Williams and, like, Get her arrangements, like disseminate that more. Find Melba Liston's work. Put, you know, work on those arrangements. Play those arrangements. Like, I don't know. It's, yeah, just pushing, pushing for women's work to be better spotlighted and represented in the modern day. What about as um, as dancers, you know, maybe if we're not um, directly involved as musicians or um, hmm. or as jazz educators how can we as lovers of jazz uh support women whether that's you know buying their music or um Mm. or you know as event organizers booking more women musicians at our events like what are ways that those on the periphery can Mm. support i think you said it in terms of buying their music um talking about them you know Oh, yeah, I went to um, the Brex and on Sunday they had this amazing band called the Hop Shabam, whatever, and it was with Marianne, uh, the trumpet player. She's amazing. I would love to see her at more things. Or, like, you know, if you have a friend that's organising a festival, like, oh, hey, like, I saw, um, you know, there was this uh, really great bass player. Um, her name's Jen Hodge. She was playing in the big orchestra at Lindy Focus, but like I would really love if Jen Hodge's band would come to this come to this event. You know, like that's you don't have to be an organizer to make requests. Um and yeah, telling your friends about those people, uh researching more, like like you said, all of the there are all of those resources that people can kind of get into. You know, if you have some if you have students, uh if you're a te- if you're teaching dance, like you know, I'm sure everyone puts on a lot of Count Basie. I sure as hell do. But, like, also who else can you put on? Maybe you can find some, like, Mary Lou Williams stuff that you can play and you can tell the students that it's Mary Lou Williams. Maybe you can find some, like, Hazel Scott and play some Hazel Scott, you know. Um, Lil Harden, like, any of these people. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just all about signal boosting, finding ways to signal boost. I guess that's it. 
Cool. That's really helpful. Um, and paying money, yes, also. Cool. So uh, thanks for joining me today. It's been a lovely chat. <laughs> um, thanks. I hope I didn't detour too often. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, that's like I a natural conversation, detoured. right? You know. So um, if people want to find women in jazz, um, what's the best way to find and support this project and um, mm. anything else you've got going on? Cool. Um, well, I uh, the website for Women in Jazz is womeninjazzpodcast, all one word, dot com. And there, there are links to the episodes. Um, you can also find a link to the Instagram. You can find there's a contact page. You can subscribe to the very occasional newsletter that I only send out when I have an important update so you don't get spammed. Um, and uh, there's also a page for donations there. I have a Patreon. Um, it's patreon.com forward slash women in jazz. And there you can help to support the project, um, basically like paying for equipment stuff that I still, one thing I, I need to get now. And also basically because I am trying to, well, one, I mean, it takes a lot of work to keep the podcast running and do a lot of this research and so on. Um, but also when I can, you know, traveling to see, uh, see artists, even, you know, going on a return train within Belgium for an interview, it's like 18 euros or something like that. So just helping to kind of cover some of those costs um, is super helpful for me because, as I said, I'm also teaching dance full time, so I'm not like particularly rich. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the Instagram is women.in.jazz. So you can find it that way um, as well. Uh, and and as the podcast is itself is available um, on Spotify and like Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, most of those kinds of platforms, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, so you can find it through those if you have one of those apps on your phone. Um, and finding out more about me, mm, well, I should maybe be better at self like a self promotion, but it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. So I have an Instagram. My name is Irani. My name is probably the name of part of the name of the episode. So if you want to find out how to spell <laughs> that, you can can do that. Cool. Um, we can check yeah. out your um your quarantine dance videos with your housemates, which I've been absolutely loving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that was fun. It was really uh, yeah. We did some we did some cool fun solo routines on the street. That was uh, that was a good time. Yeah. They're cool people. Oh, cool. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait to listen to the next episode of Women in Jazz. Thanks for having me, Ruby. Super nice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you to Arani for joining me this month. Uh, you can check out some of the resources we talked about in the show notes. And as a little bonus, I created a playlist or a starter pack, if you will, of uh, women in jazz on Spotify. Sadly, I wasn't able to find uh, recordings from all of the musicians that I would have liked to include it. Um, but it's a little nugget to work into your jazz diet nonetheless. I'd like to say a big thank you to the Shirttail Stompers for their recording of T for Two, which is our show theme tune. And if you have any feedback for the show, feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, you can send me an email at hello at swingstuff.com or I am at swingstuffpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening today and I will see you next month for more chats on the Swing Stuff Podcast. Podcast.